Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. This is a release from the Fifth Column Archive. As such, I wanted to put it in a little bit of context for you, just so you have a sense of the when and what was going on around the conversation. Try to imagine a time before the 2020 election and all of the insanity that has subsequently ensued. Put yourself back towards the end of October. Uh, Hunter Biden's laptop was still a thing that people were talking about. And up until about the 29th of October, Glenn Greenwald was still at The Intercept, a publication that he co-founded. This conversation occurs just after his noteworthy departure from The Intercept. And we recorded this exchange. I think we were probably the second media organization that he talked to. And yes, I just described the Fifth Column podcast as a media organization. I think that's fair. In this exchange, we talk about the upset that surrounded Glenn's departure, the criticism that he was receiving, the specific issues surrounding the Hunter Biden laptop story, issues about that story that are actually consequential, consequential in the sense that they're the kind of things that you would actually want to talk about, say, a month or even further removed from when that scandal actually began. But we also talk about the media broadly both about Glenn's perspective on the media, generally where the media stands, and the kind of institutions that may emerge and may need to emerge. Uh, There's a lot of really good and interesting stuff here. Uh, And unfortunately, because of some technical snafus, the original release was substantially delayed. Uh, If you're a patron of this fine podcast, you have already heard this release. Um, If you're not a patron... Um, Maybe you should be one so you can get this kind of stuff a bit earlier. This will probably be the first of several releases from the archives that you'll get over the course of the next week or so. I know I promised them a bit faster, but hey, things happen and I'm sorry. Okay, not perfect. That said, we'll quickly get into the release. Hopefully you find it engaging and illuminating. And if you don't, I assure you the problem is with you and not with us. So here it is. Glenn Greenwald again on the fifth column. We know of new methods of attack. Over the fact that we have a person sitting there at a dining room table. Um, <laughs> oh and God. by the way, I just want to say before we start, um, a, a huge baby uh, who is <laughs> mewling and crying and whinnying. And his name, uh, you, you're going to introduce us to him. Uh, Wait, Camille. let me, so you let can me do, do the, the thing. Do the real I haven't part. even done the thing yet. Do do the I haven't done the thing. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. This is this is our second in all of the many years of us doing this sort of pre-presidential election Eve-esque podcast it's also the eve of my birthday which is just this amazing beautiful period between kim kardashian's birthday and my actual birthday Mm -hmm. which all angels get their wings nothing bad can happen to anyone it's glorious and i'm delighted to be here and i do various things at freethink and they're i do them very well and i'm also joined by matt welch editor at large recent magazine who sometimes does his job but apparently has a house full of young ladies and maybe some young guys it's a pod of people 
the young children. the young guys the are, children pop. are wearing dresses as we speak so um, that's good uh, that's fine it's, it's a, that's called brooklyn yes, that's what exactly we do right. there's nothing wrong with that <laughs> matt welch um michael moynihan vice is also here also wearing a dress not yes. a kilt yes that's a dress not a kilt, no that no. is a prom dress in no. fact which is fine i have also put, my, I put my pronouns on the screen on as the you Zoom, should so you know good. How to my to culture me. is not your michael, prom dress michael, michael. vay moynihan <laughs> Also in the building. I'm delighted to be with both of you gentlemen. But I, without further ado, I'm going to get directly to our guest yes. as well. He's the legendary resigner from things. <laughs> Remarkable. The resigner human in being. chief. Re- resigner from his own thing. <laughs> biggest biggest yes. baby on Twitter. Yes. Uh, Glenn Greenwald, who, Glenn, I actually, apart from just liking you and thinking that there are lots of wonderful things I could say about you, I don't actually know how to introduce you today because you have recently changed affiliations. You are. I am still the co founder of The Intercept. And I'm sorry I was on mute because That's I true. was breaking a bunch of my toys. I was having a little tantrum <laughs> um, while I was listening. So I didn't hear the first part because I was, I was like screaming and crying um, as yeah. I was. Horrible, my horrible insults so i'm trying to yeah. Yeah, control myself um yeah, yeah. co-founding the intercept still works um that's true so i think Leg- legendary journalist writer i can't, writer I can't take that away from you nope but yeah. where where so where are you now glenn um i am now on substack which is a place that several other numerous other journalists who have been evicted from their media precincts for various forms of heresy and dissent have taken refuge in order to be able to write free of any constraints or other institutional pressures. And even though I'm only there for 24 hours, I'm extremely happy so far. Uh, Although I have to say that the last time I was on your show, I, after I was on your show, I spoke to several of my friends and I Mm. was like, Oh my God, that was the most unbearable torture I've ever endured. Mm. I'm never doing yes. that fucking show again. Yeah. And I don't know why or how Camille, yeah. using all his like personable charisma and everything, <laughs> manipulated me to get back on. But yeah. I find myself here and not really sure what yes. happened. Back to, the, back to the Abu Ghraib of podcasts. They, they always come back. They always come back. They actually call me the Ike Turner of podcasting. No matter what I do oh my to God. my co-host and my guests, they come back. Wow. Because they know. That was Camille. Yes. That, we, we all agree. We that do was, a great job. That, <laughs> that was Camille. Yeah. Comment from Camille. I'm just saying we do, we do great work together. Yeah. You know, whatever else is going on, we do great Work to I like don't make, can't don't make not those the projects. First, he's gonna be the first person to get kicked off Substack. <laughs> <laughs> that's usually the Moynihan line of like, hey, that's uh, that's uh, that's Camille. I would like to point out that um, eat the cake, anyway. We sorry. How many of our of, of people we've had on this podcast in the last six months? have lost their jobs in a high profile snit and went, or, or departed <laughs> departed their jobs or whatever or just cried like a baby way. was it different um, uh, <laughs> no i'm serious we got the barry weiss glenn's new uh, uh uh sexy american girlfriend barry weiss um <laughs> andrew sullivan am i missing who like who's who's next is the question well, i think that's the have you guys had well, Taibion? who is next we haven't had Taibion. he's we haven't had him we're working on that that's true yeah Although so, we want to have you have had you before you departed your place. Well, and that's then true. Have you after. Right. Yeah. So we you did before and collections. Yeah. Yeah. So it, we it, have it, to take we have to take take bets now on who 
has who has already been a previous. Oh, guest. let's get let's get Olivia Nuzzi, Tin and Yen, right? Like, uh, who, who's most likely? I don't know. I know. I should have I I thought twice about saying that at the beginning. I should be a lot nicer to you guys because I actually need a job. So I was thinking, like, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, like, really good at research. Um, I don't have a great rapport with potential guests. Like, I probably alienate people. So I couldn't do that. But yeah. I could probably find some topics and things for yeah. you guys to talk mm-hmm. about. I don't know. Yeah. I'll send you my resume. Our new producer, Glenn Greenwald. <laughs> Glenn, don't I, talk too much. You, don't I, overtalk I do, me. I do like topic. the fact that, that you qualified that. You said you probably irritate people. <laughs> 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 I've been following you on Twitter for a while, and I go through oh times and I'm like, would somebody beat up Glenn? And now I'm like, oh, Glenn, he's the best. So there's this. I, I, it's so funny to watch this right now, Glenn, because I see all these people, and when I see them attacking you on Twitter in the past 24 hours, I have done this thing where I just take their uh, uh, Google uh, their their Twitter handle and I Google it with yours, and I can generally find a bunch of stuff that is them praising you, but that has all changed in the well it's not a matter of 24 hours i mean you've people have been uh, mad at you for a while but a lot of people saying well i yeah i knew he was a trump supporter he's gone he's gone towards uh donald trump who is the person who has been attacking you because i know that you're a psycho like this and you read all this shit i would just walk <laughs> away you read all the attacks and you respond to them is there anybody that has actually surprised you people that were kind of in your orbit and allies and friends that have attacked you that you were surprised by you know i mean um, I mean, I've actually been pretty self-disciplined and, and, you know, prepared in advance not to follow every word on Twitter. And in fact, one of the things I'm, I've learned over the past, you know, year or so is that none of that is nearly as important as we all believe. Um, like a few days ago, I was on this podcast, this obscure podcast, much smaller than yours and much less influential, but still an interesting <laughs> podcast called Joe Rogan's show. And the never heard of it. Repercussions from doing that were so enormous that it just puts all there's like a little liberal media click on Twitter um, that if you immerse yourself in and don't look past, can you can delude yourself into believing that they matter. And then once you kind of liberate yourself from that misconception, you realize how much they don't, how much there's this huge swath of people out there who despise them or are indifferent to their judgments, much bigger than whatever little tiny things they command. Um, you know, th- to be honest, like, you know, I'm not exactly averse to confrontation and conflict, as you guys might know, but it's been a little hard over the past 24 hours, not, not because any particular person that I didn't expect out in the media ecosystem has attacked me. But, you know, there's a lot of people at the intercept who have been my friends for a long time or, you know, close, close colleagues and close friends who understandably feel a need to defend the institution. They're still at for my very harsh critique of it and have, you know, defended it in part by attacking me in ways that have sometimes been personal. And that has stung a little, um, but, you know, it's something I don't blame them for doing. And I understand the reason for it. But, you know, I, I feel like, um, and, you know, one of the reasons why I feel this lightness to me from having done this is because we all are, I think, you know, susceptible to this captivity to dogma and faction when we're in an institution, when we have a job, there's all these conflicting motives that we have about defending the place that we're at, about defending people's work who we may not otherwise wish we had to defend, appeasing an audience, appeasing some kind of set of beliefs. And so I feel like gradually over the past six to 12 months, I've really just freed myself of any of that kind of 
um, allegiance, intellectual allegiance. And of course, once you do, you start alienating and offending a lot of people who previously supported you because you were a spokesperson for that set of beliefs, but you also gain a lot of new supporters and your kind of readership and follower base becomes a lot more interesting, a lot more eclectic and a lot more diverse people who are following you, not because they expect you to say a a specific thing, but because they trust that whatever you're saying is going to be thought provoking and honest. You say six to 12 months. Uh, One of the critiques that I've seen about, uh, what you've done over the last 24 hours or however long it's been, is that, hey, this seems a little planned out. So what what have you been doing? What have you been thinking about planning? This, there's clearly some parts of this have been uh, working in your mind. And you're a lawyer, so you probably prepare a little bit more for uh, the, the breakup day <laughs> than most people. So talk about that ramp. Well, you know, I was candid about the fact in that article that I have been dissatisfied over the course of several years, increasingly so with the direction The Intercept has taken and with our inability, meaning mine and Jeremy Scales, not just to control it, but even to influence it all like to the point where we can't even get interesting freelancers published in the media outlet that we you know, created and that was built on our name. Um, but, you know, I, I do want to you know, make clear what a difficult decision this was. And I mean, I have been thinking about alternatives, but doing it carefully, I have a family and kids and, you know, all the obligations and burdens that come with that. Um, But beyond that, you know, the intercept, like I've seen suggestions, even from my former colleagues that this is financially motivated or whatever. And the reality is, of all the places you can be in the media, if you're financially motivated, The Intercept is like the sweetest spot there is. You get paid an enormous salary. No one gives the slightest shit whether or not you produce anything because there's no advertisers or subscribers to satisfy. It's funded by a single billionaire. People just don't write for two months and no one even cares or notices. They get huge salaries. There's no pressure. It's the best and easiest place in the world to work. And I had the largest salary there as is publicly known. But beyond that, they paid enormous amounts of things for me, an assistant. I have um, a lot of, you know, several criminal cases pending in Brazil because of the reporting that I did last year um, that angered the Bolsonaro government. They tried to indict me over it. It's still working its way through the court system. I have the most expensive legal firm, law firm in, in Brazil that The Intercept was paying, but no longer will, as well as 24-hour security for myself and my family, armored vehicles and the like for because of the death threats that we've been under. I, You know, so ha- the idea that I would give all that up for some um, very uncertain prospect at Substack, no matter how well it goes, of making that or more is lunacy, right? Like if you're motivated by money, the thing you do is not leave the intercept. You just park your ass there forever. Um, mm-hmm. I left because not I was thinking about forming an immediate outlet, but I was not thinking about leaving precipitously. But I did because the one thing I just can't have, I just can't, it just, I can't live with it. Um, is wanting to say something and being told that I can't. And that's what happened. So there, there are several things that you've published at Substack so far, and I want to, I want to talk about all of them. Um, the first is there is the resignation letter that you sent, uh, via email, as well as some context, essentially like an opening piece that contextualizes all of this. There is the actual piece that was the the center point of the dispute, the focal point of the dispute. There's probably a better word for that, but whatever. Um, and it is the draft version that you submitted to them. Um, and it is, it's lengthy, uh, but I've, I've read it and I've talked to the guys. I know they've read it as well. So I'd love to talk about some of that. And then there's the correspondence that you had 
um, with the editorial team at The Intercept. Uh, and you had some pretty lengthy replies. There is an, an opening salvo from one of the editors there that you could probably give us a little bit of context on. But I, I just want to just kind of focus on that last part. You've, you've resigned from The Intercept. What sort of correspondence was there back and forth? Did you let them know this is going to happen? Or after that correspondence that we saw um, in that thread of correspondence that you posted, was was that pretty much it? You got you received a note from one of the editors saying, hey, we feel disrespected. Yeah, that was the um, editor-in-chief. It seems like you don't want that to participate in the, the process. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to participate in the process. Um, it, it, it's it seems like you're disrespecting us in the publication and you can't publish this anywhere else. Right. And you immediately sent your resignation after that. Was there any attempt to, to reach out to you to get you to, to stop and not resign from the publication? Well, I don't think they really had that chance. I sent that email yesterday, you know, three weeks ago now, but it was yesterday morning to the president of first look media, which is the parent company, the intercept and also the other chief of, of, of the intercept. Betsy Reed. And then I, about three hours later, went and posted on Substack my pretty scathing critique of The Intercept as an explanation, which I felt like I owed people, my readers and others, about why I was leaving. So mm. once that happened, there was no, hey, maybe we can work this out. <laughs> like it was, you know, um, pretty much the bridge had been burned. I mean, Which, three hours is a fair amount of time. I would have called you right away if I saw a resignation note come across the transom from you. Yeah. I mean, you know, the part of the problem is, you know, you have the intercept here, but then there's this huge corporate structure that has been constructed above it and around yeah. it with the human resources department, lawyers, a board of directors. So I'm sure that before they could do anything, they had to have all these meetings and that paralyzed any them to, to, to act quickly in the mm. way that you might if you were just running a newsroom. Um, but, you know, honestly, I don't um, I, I, I by that point, I, I was fully committed. Um, there was a, an attempt by Jeremy Scahill, who's my longtime friend and a co-founder who went into the article when he heard that this was all going on. And he made his own editorial suggestions about how the article could perhaps be modified so as to not compromise the integrity of what I wanted to say, but assuage their concerns. But the editorial team in New York hit the roof when they learned that he had done that because I had told him that all of his changes pretty much were totally acceptable to me, but I knew it was nowhere near enough mm. because what they really wanted, this is, I'll talk, just, this is the nub of the whole thing. Like everything else we can talk about, there's interesting media uh, and cultural issues that are raised by all of this. But the nub of it is that in 2016, a lot of media outlets, but particularly the New York Times, the Intercept, and a few other small group of outlets were accused of being principally responsible for having elected Donald Trump because we did report a lot on the contents of the leaked emails um, from the DNC and John Podesta because they were newsworthy. They led to the resignation of the top five DNC officials because of exposed corruption on their part. And it's shed a lot about mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton as well. And I remember so distinctly on election night when in Slack, when it became obvious that Trump was going to win, people in Slack began immediately saying, we need to apologize for our coverage, like for doing our jobs. We need to say we're sorry for having contributed to this disaster. And I said, 
you know, you don't have any intercept is if you feel that way, because we did our jobs, that's our job. Our job isn't to elect Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden. Our job is to inform the public about what they ought to know. But I think ever since then, because of the milieu in which these editors and journalists at The Intercept reside, they spent four years hearing that Donald Trump and everything that he ended up doing was on them and their fault, which is why they were so eager over the last four years to counteract my journalism by showing that they could also get on board Russiagate and just publishing all this like anti-Trump agitprop every day. They were really desperate about modifying the perception people had of them. And I, no one thought the article I wrote, it wasn't really even that big of a deal the article I wrote. Um, no one thought that was going to like swing the election and persuade leftists and swing takes to stay home. What they were petrified of was that if Trump win, won, they would spend the next four years hearing people again saying, oh, look, you did it again. You helped Trump win. You published this bullshit reporting on Biden. Trump didn't win hearing that they tried that's what all of this is about, which is why what they were saying to me was, we will publish this if you remove all the parts about Joe Biden and just use a much more stripped down version of the article that like attacks the media in some abstract way. And I obviously wasn't willing to do that. But that was the real, you know, usually I write and nobody knows what I'm writing until the very last minute when I publish it. I don't work with editors. They don't even know what I'm writing. They marshal this like extreme editorial scrutiny once they found out I was writing about this because they were petrified of how their circle of friends and colleagues and the like were going to react. So to be, so this isn't, this isn't typically the process because I mean, obviously if you look online, the, the response from so many people making the same joke over and over um, is that I'm going to quit because an editor tried to edit me. This is what I've seen, you know, for the past 24 hours. Glenn Greenwald quit because someone was trying to edit his copy. And in, in some sense, in what you're saying is that's true. But um, what people are leaving out is the motivation for that. Edit. Is, and, and is it fair to say that this is not the typical editorial process on a Glenn Greenwald article for, for The Intercept? Yeah, I think it's really important. You know, people can agree with it or not. But the fact of the matter is, I have always, in the 15 years that I've been doing journalism, had a very absolutist condition for working anywhere, which is that absent two very narrow circumstances, one where what I'm writing could give rise to legal liability for the publication, in which case I will ask for a legal review, or if I'm doing very original reporting that's very complex and difficult, like the Snowden reporting, or the Brazil reporting that we did all last year from an archive of hacked phone records, I mean, phone chats from Brazilian officials, I'll work with an editor. And if, for example, I had been publishing, if I had gotten my, my hands on that hard drive and were publishing, I would have worked with an editor to make sure that it went through a verification process and it's, that's difficult reporting. But the, the way I began writing, the way I began my career in journalism, I didn't go to Columbia Journalism School and then like learn my way into the New York Times. <laughs> I was a lawyer and I just started a blog in 2005 for no reason, with no plan, other than I just wanted to say things that I didn't think were being said about the erosion of civil liberties and the war on terror. That yeah, worked is I would open the blog spot. I would write what I wanted to write in a very kind of passionate way. And then I would hit send or publish or post or whatever. And no one ever intervened and said, you can't say this. Or, and my audience grew really rapidly and it was working. Um, and it was making an impact. And so when Salon asked me to, to, to go there and, and do that there, and then when The Guardian, the old, one of the oldest newspapers in the West, asked me to do so too, with both of them, I said, I'll do so only on the condition that I don't have an editor 
work beforehand that be posted direct. I don't even send it to an editor to post. I have to physically post it to the internet so I control not only the content, but the timing of when it gets posted. And they both revamped their system to do so. And so obviously when I started a new media outlet, I wasn't creating a new media outlet to say, hey, I have all this great freedom I've always had. I'm ready. I want to give that up to like <laughs> Peter Moss or Betsy Reed from now on. Like they're the boss. I'm obviously I wasn't fucking doing that. So I, in my contract, negotiated exactly the same clause. And that's how it's always worked for seven years. Other than the Snowden reporting and the Brazil reporting, and maybe like one or two other pieces where I said, I think an editor should look at this. None of my pieces get edited at all. They go right up to the internet. No one assigns me anything. I write about what I want, when I want. So I understand that journalists who work in big newsrooms who have to deal with editors aren't sympathetic to the fact that I'm angry that they try to modify or change what I wrote. That's how most journalists work. It's not how I work. And the thing is, it's it's never been how I've worked with The Intercept. And the fact that it happened to me for the first time in 15 years of writing, six days before an election, that everyone at The Intercept in New York is desperate for Joe Biden to win. And just so happened to be an article that I was writing critical of Joe Biden is obviously not a coincidence, which is why I call it censorship. Not because going through an editorial process to me is tantamount to censorship, but because Mm -hmm. entirely new rules were created to control what my expression specifically because of what I was saying about a presidential candidate whom they're all eager to see victorious. And that is the framework that's so crucial to understand what happened. A couple of super quick uh, contextual points as Moynihan can testify. Reason's uh, website, blog especially, uh, for many years uh, through my editorship up until or maybe towards the end of my editorship, we came from blog world. Blog world was you can go ahead and post it. Uh, there wasn't. Uh, I'm not sure that Moynihan's blog posts ever were edited back then. And now the current reason staff, clearly no. staffers, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was the reason why uh, the the current reason staffers like, oh my god, you guys worked like that? That's nuts. But that's uh, that is a remnant of coming out of blog world. Which wait, you don't do that anymore. No, no, no. We uh, we have an editing process now. Even I oh, get edited. Okay. Damn it. Uh, wow. Yeah, no. It, wow. It's, uh, every everybody does. Um, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to uh, the, the drill down on that censorship question because a lot of people are are uh, are splitting hairs on that or you know uh, busting your chops. I recall uh, uh, speaking of blog world, um, you know, right after nine eleven, places that had never questioned anything that I wrote suddenly were holding or spiking my stories, and I eventually left. Um, and yet I found using the word censorship to describe that was a little drama queenie. Um, what's your response to people who say, dude, that's not censorship. That is, OK, heightened editorial scrutiny at the last minute. But censorship is actually, you know, you don't even have a Substack. I mean, I think, you know, um, I get it. I mean, I know censorship is a word that packs a big punch, but I believe without the slightest doubt that what was going on had nothing to do with editorial or journalistic standards. Nobody, this is an article, a kind of article I've written a hundred times, you know, in the last seven years, like a big media critique, a hard hitting media critique combined with my view of evidence that deviates from liberal consensus. There was nothing in there that other people hadn't said. Matt Taibbi wrote an article very similar in its analysis of that evidence Ken Vogel in the New York Times had done the same. Ravi Soavi in Reason had made many of the similar points as I was making. It was so 
you know, far away from anything that would have provoked the editorial scrutiny from a journalistic perspective, that the reason I call it censorship is because it was motivated exclusively by a desire to prevent me from criticizing Joe Biden so close to the election. Now, obviously, it's not state censorship. I know it doesn't implicate the First Amendment. There are other forms of censorship, though, like when Facebook and Google or Facebook and Twitter block, for example, linking to the New York Post, that would be censorship, right? And when liberals said, oh, when liberals suddenly started sounding like you guys at Reason, like, these are private corporations. They have the right to do whatever they want or what to do. I was like, you're fucking liberals since when do you talk that way? But you know, I was like, imagine if like Google, Twitter, and Facebook tomorrow united and issued a policy saying we will no longer permit any criticism of Donald Trump or the Republican Party, only criticism of Joe Biden, and the Republicans shall be permitted to be spread on our, our platforms, I don't think liberals would have any trouble calling censorship, even though even though technically you could just go to another platform and, and, and do that there. But the reason I call it that, though, is because I know the difference between editorial concerns and political ones. Mm-hmm. And it was so nakedly political what was being done. And this isn't an ex post rationalization for, for having used the word censorship. In the, in the emails that you disclosed, you are very careful in, in describing censorship in precisely the way that you just described. And I, I want to commend that exchange to people. And I think that they, they really ought to go find this and look at them, look at this themselves, if only because of the extraordinary contrast. And I mean, it, that the first dispatch um, in which uh, Peter, is it Pe- Moss? Peter Moss? Peter, yeah. Peter Moss is, uh, oh, uh, Peter Moss, okay, um, is, is responding to you. And he does detail a bunch of things which he would like you to change. Um, in many respects, these are things that I, I thought before I saw your reply, actually. These are in the piece. These are in the draft that I just read. So I'm not really sure why you would want him to change this. He's qualified this already. He's not overstating. But in exactly. either case, by the time it gets to the end of his very lengthy reply, you you fire off about 1900 words um you're engaging in this process you're having a conversation and the reply that you re- that you receive the rejoinder from betsy is about 70 odd words and as i described before our intention was to help you shape this for publication you don't get to publish this elsewhere and i don't like the way that you're talking about your colleagues in this publications and that's it like that's all you got and I, you know, I just let me, let me, let me just say a, let me say a couple of things about this. So, what I did not publish, just because I thought it was already too much content, like three articles in the same day, about four thousand words each, is too much even for me. But there was a series of, you know, like exchanges that I had over the week where she was anticipating this conflict, saying like, "Look, if you're going to write about this, I foresee we're going to we're headed toward an editorial conflict." Oh, wow. And I kept saying, Betsy, I'm not somebody who I'm, I think you might have a misconception about what I'm going to write. I'm not going to recite the like maximalist Rudy Giuliani theory that this evidence is smoking gun, a smoking gun of Joe Biden's corruption. I don't think it is. I think it raises questions. And I, as Camille suggested, I put in all the caveats, not because anyone wanted to me to me to, but because I, I, I believed it was necessary to, for, to be accurate, saying there's no evidence that any deal in China was consummated. Um, there's no deal that Biden participated on paper in any of these deals. All we have is oral testimony about that. In Ukraine, there's no evidence that his motive was to help Burisma by changing the prosecutor, even though it definitely did end up helping that company. It's not clear that that's the reason he did it. So all to argue with me about 
the view that I expressed was, as Camille said, already put in there, which is also why I felt like there was no good faith editorial process going on because neither of them is stupid. They had read the article and they had to have known that they were contriving objections to dress up but their in their censorship as noble editorial concerns. And the, the conversation that I had with Betsy over the course of that prior week before I had even written a word when she was already threatening me with editorial, she was calling an editorial conflict, demonstrates that mindset. But the other point I think is important, so important is like, and yet, like the, probably the thing that pushed me over the edge was the fact that I kind of, you know, I got home that I was in Rio and I were, were a couple hours outside of Rio. I got home, I saw that memo, the, what he was calling the story memo, which already I knew was going to be ponderous and annoying. Cause like, what the fuck is a story memo? I've never had one of those <laughs> in my life before. I knew that couldn't be good. Cause you don't like in a story memo say like, Hey, I'll set to go. So got home and I read it, try and like respond in a restrained way. So I kind of said like, look, I'm happy to work through this, but it seems like you guys don't want me to publish this. So if you don't want me to publish it, just let's agree that the intercept isn't accepting this. And under my contract, which I've never exercised before, but I do have the right in the event, the intercept doesn't want to publish something to just then be able to go publish it elsewhere, which I had already planned to do in the event that they didn't accept it. I had that lined up, but the fact that they were said came back and said, not only can't you publish the article as you have it, but we also demand or insist that you not publish it elsewhere. It would be detrimental to the intercept. Really heightened my belief that censorship was the appropriate word, right? Because now I'm not just mm-hmm. being told I can't say this at the intercept. They're saying I can't say it anywhere. And then finally, the key point for me was I said to them in that one in response to the story memo, look, you guys clearly disagree with my view of the evidence. I think it's completely reasonable. It's very debatable what this it's reasonable for people to have different views. If you think that what I'm saying is unpersuasive, that my view of the evidence and what the Hunter Biden emails show um, is less than convincing, go fucking write an article, like saying that I'm full of shit. Go write an article saying, <laughs> today we published this article by Glenn Greenwald who made this argument, but I, Peter Moss, or whoever he gets, thinks this way. And I told them that's what a confident and healthy news organization would do is their dissent instead of quashing it. The New York fucking Times let Brett Stevens, mm-hmm. I, I think the Matrix broke that day, but they did let him <laughs> criticize one of their most prized pieces of journalism, the 1619 Project that won the Pulitzer, and not with like pulling his punches, but saying mm-hmm. the whole thing was a journalistic fraud and failure. So if the New York Times can air that dissent, why can't we? I was fine with that. But again, that's why I never believed that there was good faith effort to engage in these issues they were just they were kind of playing off the clock right because if i had you know spent days accommodating their concerns the election would be upon us and there'd be sure. no point in publishing it the in in betsy reed's note she says this which is i think probably the harshest criticism of you in it and there are quite a few is that uh you accuse them of political bias but it is Glenn who is uh, guilty of political bias. It is he who, att- who is attempting to recycle the dubious claims of a political campaign, the Trump campaign, and launder them as journalism. So if you want to respond to that, it's, it's interesting because they're, I mean, it's, it's essentially saying that you are doing the bidding of the Trump campaign, um, putting stuff out there that, that is dubious. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I, I su- suspect they think it's not true. And laundering it as journalism, which, again, suggests that you're doing uh, political dirty work here. I mean, how do you respond to that? An important context, though. This is a public statement that is made to a journalist who inquires about this, this ongoing dispute that has become public. Yes. And in this, 
she's not only you know defending the publication, she's savaging you personally, Glenn. Right, which I feel like I went out of my way not to do in, in that article. I mean, I had some paragraphs in there that I took out purposely to depersonalize the critique. I know the critique was harsh, but I tried not to make it harsh about individuals, but just about where I felt like the institution had got wrong. But that's okay. Like, I understand it was a huge blow to them, right? Like, that's the place they work. That's how they feed their families. My leaving and the way I left was a major, major blow to that institution. I understand that they were angry and upset with me and how I did it. And I'm going to give them leeway to do that and not, like, whine about it since I had tantrums about other things as a grown adult. Um, but, you know, just a couple of things. Like, first of all, I wanted to add to, to the what Camille asked about with that exchange. That last email that she sent was she said, your comments about the intercept are offensive and unacceptable, unacceptable, meaning I don't have the right to express the views that I had expressed about where the intercept had gone wrong, which I found so bizarre for several reasons. Number one, I'm a co-founder of the media organization that I was critiquing. I feel like it's definitely acceptable for me in private to the editor in chief to tell her what it is that I thought had gone wrong with the Intercept's editorial process and mission. That's exactly what I have the right to do. But it was particularly bizarre because just about two months ago, one of the young reporters at the Intercept went onto Twitter and not privately, but publicly and repeatedly branded one of our best reporters, Lee Fong, a racist and caused every liberal journalist virtually in New York and Washington to click retweet and like on her tweets, destroying his reputation and then didn't chide her, but made him apologize. So to be told that my critiquing the organization on substantive grounds is unacceptable, it's acceptable for one of the young reporters to call one of our journalists, longtime journalists, a racist repeatedly, that seems to be acceptable. That did not sit well with me. Um, and, you know, I think that um, that you what was what was your question the, exactly the, the, the bench, i just went back to sure the and just to um uh, interject something in there lee fong who um has impeccable uh, lefty credentials and is a good reporter uh was attacked for actually publishing a video in which somebody else said something uh, about <laughs> about black lives matter a, 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 black, two min- a black yeah. protester at a black lives matter yes yes about a two-minute protest yeah. there to support it yeah and he, he went and interviewed 10 people one of whom was him so lest you lest you think these were fair charges against against lee they were not to the, really the question not. um uh in betsy reed's response to you it was the uh, question about the dubious claims of the trump campaign and you were doing the bidding of the trump campaign and you're trying to launder that, in their words, launder that as journalism. So the critique of The Intercept for four years that she was defending The Intercept from, you're doing the dirty work of the Trump campaign by doing your job as reporters, was now one that she's, now she's voicing that same critique about me because I want to report on document just like The Intercept did in 2016. But the, the other thing is, you know what, I think, and this is one of the things I said to Peter, is I said, look, you guys are all desperate for Biden to win or more accurately for Trump to lose, but it's the same thing. And I think you have to be open to the fact that that is coloring your editorial judgment. Not that you're like corruptly trying to prevent me from publishing this because you think it's going to help Biden win. You're so attached to the, the, the belief that it's urgent that Trump be defeated that I think that's clearly coloring how you're viewing my writing. But I'm also willing to acknowledge the exact equal proposition that I am so contemptuous of the corruption of the Democratic Party 
that that might be coloring my perspective of this evidence as well in the other direction, because my view is as human beings, no matter what we call ourselves, journalists, doctors, you know, uh, bus drivers, whatever, we see the world subjectively, which is exactly why I'm so offended by the idea that anyone is hubristic enough to believe that they have a monopoly on truth sufficient to censor others. And that's ultimately what I said is like, I, of course, I believe that you have subjective politicized perspectives. We all do. And that's why it's so much better to air it all and engage with it instead of acting like you have the objective truth that's sufficient to prevent me from saying what I want to say because you're not convinced by it. That's like, that's the thing that I never understand, right? Like there's so much stuff at the intercept that's published that I fucking hate that I think (laughs) is shitty journalism that I think is like completely grotesque politically And even though it's built on my name to this very day, I never once tried to act to say that person should be silenced. Mm -hmm. And that's what was so offensive to me was at the very media outlet that I created with as one of its overarching values, protecting the editorial freedom of journalists, they were doing to me what I've never done to anybody else, which is saying, since we don't find your views convincing, we're going to try and silence you instead of engaging with it. I'm uh, curious about, um, your theory of the case, because this uh, this is a, a trend that we've watched happen at a lot of media institutions. One could argue that more or less it's happened at the New York Times uh, opinion pages. You could uh, argue that it's happened at some things that were founded in the 90s and have changed. Uh, a lot of places uh, have changed their kind of editorials, but it totally happened at Gawker. I mean, uh, Gawker became something that, uh, uh, you know, knowing Nick Denton as I have known him for 25 years, I don't think was an accurate reflection of his values. I'll put, just put it that way. Um, what is that thing um, that happens? At, what do you attribute the kind of like when when an institution ends up being uh, finding itself kind of opposite from its original intentions, or at least its uh, original co-founders, is 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 there? Am I wrong to see a commonality in that thread? What would you, what would you say about that? Yeah, you know, I've been giving a lot of thought to that. Um, in part because you know, as I said in the article before all this happened, been planning or exploring the prospect of creating a new media outlet, kind of like trying again, um, and of course. You know, people I've been speaking with have been asking me, well, why, what went, like, what are you going to do to make it different? Why isn't it just going to turn into another intercept captive to some, you know, dreary, narrow political ideology that can't say anything for fear of offending a certain group of people? And I think the problem, one of the mistakes we made is that we define the intercept in two antagonistic and ultimately irreconcilable ways. It was designed on the one hand to be this adversarial news outlet that was going to challenge power centers and orthodoxies and pieties, no matter where they were found. Um, The intelligence community, both political parties, because the three of us who co-founded it and were kind of its public face were in various ways associated with some version of political leftism, not you know, our own idiosyncratic versions, but still leftism, it became a left liberal outlet. And I think that when you put an edit, an ideological label on a news outlet, even inadvertently, but kind of 
you know, implicitly it, you're, you're on, you're on an inevitable collision course between the values that you claim reside separate and apart from, or even above ideology and then captivity to ideological dogma. Um, and that's what, if I am able to find some way in conjunction with others to create a new media outlet is one of the mistakes I'm going to avoid is, you know, making sure that however we're defining this new outlet is not defined based in traditional left-right politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other one that's just a little more administrative is, you know, the three of us decided early on that we weren't going to run the newsroom. I didn't want to be in human resources meetings and budget meetings with like Pierre Omidyar's corporate people. And, you know, I wanted to focus on my own journalism and that meant we had to hire an editor in chief. And the idea was, okay, this editor in chief is going to be there to serve our vision. But of course you get an editor in chief. They're like a, you know, accomplished professional with a lot of confidence in their journalistic abilities and they want to start running things. And I think that's a common problem, not just in media organizations, but all companies where you have founders who create it with a vision, but then they give up control day to day to managers. And as it grows, there's kind of a schism between the people who are now working today and the founder who still feel who have given up operational control. And that's definitely one of the things that happened also. Well, Glenn, I, I would love for us to talk a little bit about the the actual Biden controversy and this this draft that you published, which was the exact same draft that you had submitted to, to the editors at The Intercept, which was rejected, um, at least in that format. Um, I mean, just at a very high level, and we've talked about this controversy in the past, and I wonder, gentlemen, if your own sort of thinking on, on this has changed, so that that's for the room. Um, but I mean, your presentation of it, Glenn, as you mentioned, a number of people have sort of gone through a lot of this. It seemed very by the numbers to me. I mean, you initially began by taking a look at the merits of the controversy examining the strength of the evidence, whether or not there is a way to adjudicate, like, is are in fact these emails legitimate? Um, this, this claim that this is some sort of Russian propaganda um, uh, operation, that the only reason that anyone would look at this is because the Russians want us to. Um, and I think you adjudicate those claims in a pretty straightforward way. And as you mentioned earlier, you don't come out of this suggesting that all of this proves that Joe Biden is dirty. Um, I think you seem to arrive at a conclusion that is very compatible with the conclusion that I believe, Matt, I don't even know if you were around for that first conversation we had, but where Moynihan and I were talking and said, this is, this is, you know, pretty ugly, like nasty, um, parochial political corruption in the sense that Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, is seemingly very willing to trade on the family name and as are other family members who've made a fortune doing this kind of stuff in the past. And there are questions as to whether or not Joe Biden actually knew what was going on here, um, whether he was directly involved, as some of the emails perhaps seem to indicate he was. But there is no very explicit evidence that it is definitely the case that Joe did know. I mean, my, in my own estimation, I mean, the fact that you don't know, considering how much all the, the rest of us know, is actually pretty damning in and of itself, just in terms of the merits or demerits of your leadership. Um, but then the, the other side of this is just the broader indictment of the media who seem not just disinterested in this story, um, but like aggressively, assertively disinterested in this story. I've been astonished by the lack of 
uh, coverage in recent days, even of these interviews with people who have some direct knowledge of these emails um, and could potentially offer some context. And with the rather casual way that Joe Biden and his various um, representatives in the media are just kind of receiving questions about this stuff and dismissing them out of hand and just turning it and saying, you know, there's nothing to see there, so I'm not going to respond to it. The real controversy is what Donald Trump is doing and the fact that they're just permitted to do this. It, it is unseemly when your, your son is trading on the family name. And it is difficult to believe, at a minimum, a little bit ugly and distressing when you're telling me that everything that your son did in working for this Ukrainian energy company while he was doing what everyone can see as just trading on the family name, that it's totally above board totally and fine. fine. Totally fine. When even your son has said it wasn't fine and he shouldn't have done I don't, it. And what, you how much has this. Hunter Biden done that's fine? Not to be mean, <laughs> but like um, it, it hasn't had a stellar career. Uh, and, and I mean, we've seen this in basically every family and God knows the family that's in the family that's operating a hotel across from the uh, White House with the president's name on it might have a wee bit of corruption uh, associated with. But like, you know, Roger Clinton, remember him, Uh, Billy Carter, Billy Carter. Uh, um, And and the one that um, uh, of all of the corruptions associated with uh, first families and the Trump one is probably too big and too exhausting to get your mind around. So I kind of just put it over in David Farnhold's lap or whatever his name is in The Washington Post who details this stuff at great lengths. Um, But the Clinton Foundation, where it was all above board corruption uh, in my view other people might disagree of like i'm you know bill clinton's uh, you know uh, we're going to start a gigantic super well-heeled foundation that's going to trade on our name and we're going to launder money from saudi and turkish billionaires uh to uh to try to get them bought into kind of respectable davos society and and run things around there while she is or you know uh, was a secretary of state like holy crap that's just right right out in front of of everything so i i put it in in all of those categories and to add one more thing to that i mean obviously this is about uh, Donald Trump losing, um, and that's a prospect that I'm I'm looking forward to, if it happens. But you know, the interesting thing about it is that the progressive left, and one would assume that the progressive left associated with the Intercept, this is the complaint that was being that was made from uh, Bernie people for for you know years, is that this is cor- the corporate Democrat, the Clinton machine. It's the very different than the kind of Peter Schweitzer Breitbart dot com. Um, critique of the Clintons, where you know it gets into this she 's probably murdering people in in swamps in arkansas but it 's surprising <laughs> to me, and obviously this is, is is only because of the election that um, this person that it was everybody 's last choice i mean I was just with a bunch of people that were doing this settle for Biden campaign, and these progressive people that were saying like I, I guess we have to uh, if, if we must, we will but the 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 complaint that it's um, people that are in the swamp, to use uh, Donald Trump's term, which means nothing to him because he, he has expanded the swamp and it is the swamp. But for, for this, this idea that, that uh, this is you know, acceptable behavior or something we just come to understand, that's the, one of the key reasons that, that uh, Bernie Sanders was so popular. 
I would uh, yeah, just uh, I mean, sorry to interrupt, but uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, go ahead. Go just ahead. wanted to reiterate the point. I mean, the 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 eighty percent of the article that I was nodding with the most vigorously was is the media critique, uh, and I, I was I was just echoing Camille's comment. I was just sort of like shocked to see how many journalists or journalism, you know, uh, professors or media commentators were like high fiving Joe Biden for not answering questions about this. Astonishing. Yeah. So. So, I mean, those are all like really interesting and great points. And, you know, just to just to quickly add like one other example that is a big deal to the sort of, you know, hall of shame of first family relatives was probably one of the worst ones, which was Neil Bush and his involvement in the collapse of the savings oh, loan industry God, yeah. in the mm-hmm. 80s while his father was uh, vice president, Bush 41. He was also that cost. He was also sorry. He was also like on the board of all kinds of Saudi companies uh, back in the day too. Go on. <laughs> True. Yeah, yeah. But, but the difference was all of that was like heavily investigated. There was, I mean, if you were a journalist and you were to say for any of those scandals that you guys just went through, including the Trump kids, this stuff is off limits. You shouldn't be asking questions about this. This doesn't matter. This is inappropriate to even question and doing a political hit job for the nobody thought that way because that's not what journalism, the mentality of it is. So when I decided to approach this article, I did so with a few priorities and, and, and motivations. One is that, you know, it wasn't just that journalists were failing to investigate because I don't like critiquing journalists for what they fail to do because, you know, every journalist has a finite amount of time. You can only cover so many stories. I do think it's fair to do that for big, big news outlets like CNN and New York Times that you are supposed to cover everything significant. So, but I wouldn't critique an individual journalist for not doing something just for the failure to do it. What I was seeing that was so much worse, um, and you guys alluded to this, was an affirmative attempt to delegitimize and demonize any other journalists who were doing it. It wasn't the Biden campaign. It was other journalists. They first began by saying it was Russian disinformation, kind of just like the old playbook that now nobody believes was true and for which there was never any evidence. And one of the reasons why I was so angry was because The Intercept was one of the media outlets that took the lead in laundering, if you want to talk about laundering, the claims from ex-CIA officials that it was Russian disinformation. The other, so, so, it was, it, I wasn't addressing just journalists who I felt like weren't doing their job enough. It was the ones who were uniting with the CIA and the Biden campaign to say that these this is not a legitimate story. These documents should not be discussed. Joe Biden shouldn't even be asked about them. Maggie Haberman, the first day that she tweeted the New York Post story, trended on Twitter with the name Maga Haberman, led by journalists vilifying her simply for noting the story. And then Bo Erickson asked Joe Biden just the most basic generic question, like what is your response to that story? And journalists accused him of carrying water for the, the fucking Russians. So it was the overt, aggressive, explicit claims coming from other journalists that the story, that journalists had a moral duty not to report on it. That was part of what I wanted to critique. And as part of that, what astonishes me is that it's now been three weeks since the New York Post first published that story. The Biden campaign and other journalists repeatedly called this disinformation, Russian disinformation, disinformation, try to sow doubts about its authenticity. How is it possible that Joe Biden has never to this day had to answer two questions? Number one, are these emails in text? 
authentic or do you claim that they're forgeries? Do you acknowledge that they're authentic or do you claim that they're forgeries? And number two, did your son Hunter in fact leave house to be repaired at that store? The fact that no one has even asked him about that. Well, we did and they ignored us. Let alone journalists should be, the role of journalists should be out there pressuring Biden, criticizing him, demanding that he answer it. That is what has so offended me is not just like the, you know, failure to pursue it as aggressively as I think it should be, but the attempt to do exactly the opposite, to like defend the fact that he shouldn't do it and to applaud him and praise him for not answering questions. So that's number one. Number two is I do feel like I'm able to come to this story with a particular expertise because this story is based on a trove of documents that were obtained without authorization and have questions of provenance and authentication. And I have a lot of experience more than, you know, the standard journalist in doing stories like that. That was obviously the Snowden archive. We asked all those questions. Where did this come from? How is it obtained? How do you authenticate it? What is relevant? What isn't? The reporting I did last year in Brazil, my source had hacked the phones of Brazil's top officials in the Bolsonaro government and gave me the chats. We had to authenticate those. We had to figure out the provenance. We had to see the ethics of how do you report the private communications and how you don't. I've covered WikiLeaks for years and have been very close to WikiLeaks. And so I understand their reporting on archives of, of this kind. And so all of the indicia that I could see from the beginning all pointed only one direction, which is that all of these materials are then so many reasons, including the fact that obviously if somebody publishes, and not just somebody, but the world's, the, the country's fourth biggest newspaper publishes fabricated or forged emails in your name, the first thing you're going to do to kill the credibility of the reporting is pipe up and say, that's not my fucking email. I didn't write that. That's not mine. That's a, those are fake documents. People on the other end of the email change confirming that they got those same emails and word for word, it was accurate, including Frank Luntz, who in, unwittingly did it, but other people as well, that it conforms to a lot of different events, that it would be very difficult to fabricate an archive of that size and detail in that way. It all points to the fact that it was authentic. So I wanted to dispel the bullshit claim that I don't even think journalists believe. And in one of my conversations I had with Betsy that Matt published, she says like, look, okay, I admit it seems pretty clear. These are authentic and real, like finally gave up the ghost on that. And then finally on the substance itself, one of the, I spent, you know, the last two months digging into this stuff with Ukraine and Burisma because, you know, I had spent a lot of time reporting on Russiagate stuff, which dealt with Ukraine. And there, the, there is this bizarre, think about it. Joe Biden was vice president of the United States. That's a lot of responsibility to the American people, not just on his plate, but like one of his main priorities was changing the, the, the prosecutor in Ukraine, not even the president, the, uh, the prosecutor. So I want to know like, why was that so important to him? And so the claim became, well, because they wanted good government in Ukraine. They wanted someone who was going to really fight corruption and this guy wouldn't do it. But then you look and you see that the replacement to Victor Shokin was Yuri Litsenko, somebody who had no experience as a prosecutor, not even have a law license, was a crony of, of President Poroshenko, was somebody who himself had been in prison for corruption. And that whole rationale falls apart. And then you have fact checking from like the Washington Post to defend Biden saying there's no possibility that Biden fired this guy to benefit. Fit Burisma, the company where he's troubled $50,000 a month because this prosecutor wasn't in Burisma. As it turns out, there were multiple investigations under, uh, under Shokin. 
And then the replacement for Shokin that Joe Biden demanded, Lutsenko, within 10 months, exonerated Burisma, closed all of those investigations with the finding that they had done nothing wrong. So whatever else happened, we know that Hunter Biden was getting a lot of money from a Ukrainian energy company for which he had no, no qualifications to serve a person in Ukraine on the planet. And that his father took action that co- co- directly conferred significant benefits on that company. Whether that was his intention or not, it has all the appearance of sleaze and corruption mm-hmm. that, yes, the Trump family also engages in, but that's not a reason to refrain from reporting on the story. Right. And the same is true in China, right? Like, did Trump, did Biden falsely deny involvement or in or knowledge of did business deals being, you know, proposed in his name that a witness insists on the record in interviews that he spoke directly to Joe Biden about. Those are at least real questions that journalists have to be investigating and are in. And that was what my article was designed to say. Reading reading all of that, it, it brought to mind the impeachment proceedings, which in many respects, like once you get beyond the question of did this conversation actually happen, we're now talking about motives and intent. And there was always this question of, well, look, I mean, the Trump administration's defense was, well, look, there was, there was no favor done. So, you know, you've got the quid, but no pro quo. So it's fine. And in a very real sense, it, there's some sort of similar dynamic here. Was there an intention of giving Joe Biden some financial benefit in this thing? That is a different question than whether or not there's any evidence that he actually received any sort of financial benefit from this thing. There is definitely the potential for some sort. There's an appearance of corruption here, whether or not there's any corruption explicitly that took place. And it's a circumstance where it seems like he could have Right. And it's one that Joe, this is whatever else true. There was definitely an appearance of corruption. And the way we know that is even the New York Times in real time was editorializing and saying your son's involvement in this energy company while you're mucking around in Ukraine uh-huh. is destroying the credibility of what you're claiming. And the State Department ethicists were raising the same concerns. Biden knew about it and didn't care. Now, I don't know why that was happened. I do think he loves his son. His son is troubled. He's the only one in the family making money because Bo has died. Bo is in public service anyway. And the Bidens are in the White House. And has Joe has been in public service for 50 years. So still, you know, still manages you to a, be worth millions and millions of dollars somehow, right? Good, that we're not also him. supposed to ask like how those enormous <laughs> homes ended up in Biden's possession. So your your troubled son who's struggling with substance abuse um, finally is making money, and you don't want to tell him like you have to quit. So he allowed this perception to fester at the very least if he didn't actively take steps to benefit that company. And yes, the EU. And the IMF also wanted this prosecutor fired for their own independent reasons. That is also true. Um, it could be true that they wanted the prosecutor fired for no reason other than the standard geostrategic one, that they wanted to augment their influence in Ukraine at the expense of Russia. But whatever else is true, the cover story that came from Biden, but then also like the Washington Post under the guise of fact checking, which is that they were doing it because this was a corrupt prosecutor in the United States, as we all know, can't mm. abide corruption in its puppet in its puppet regimes. They just absolutely don't like that. When in fact, of course, they love corruption. Corruption is a key tool to control other countries and open up their markets to U.S. companies. This bullshit is that, oh, Biden was just really concerned about making sure that that prosecutor was vigilantly committed, the one who never had any experience as a prosecutor and himself had been in prison for corruption, to, you know, pursuing oligarchs who were corrupt is clearly 
uh, unpersuasive and contrived story. But none of this has been reported except like in very limited places. And when people report it, including the New York Times in 2019, like Ken Vogel did to his credit, they get vilified and attacked. And so that's really what I was just trying to do is highlight what I thought had been obscured. I know we're running up against everybody's time here. So let me let me uh, see if I can finish off on a question that's outside the uh, Joe Biden story and just ask beyond the Substack uh, and all the attention that's getting. And, and by the way, it seems to be in the top five, right, of uh, Substack, uh, you know, you and Taibbi. Uh, there's, a, there's a theme amongst the people that are up in this top Sullivan. five. Stop making me interrupt. Yeah, no, no, it's I fine. Just keep, I'm, I'm watching it in real time. You've fallen to six. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're down at, you're down at seven. Oh, God, this is a fucking disaster, Glenn. Um, what is... It's fine. I, I think we could find a job. Find a job. Honestly, yeah. I think we could use it. <laughs> I, I think we can what find What is uh, next? I mean, there's some hint in your uh, piece that you're going to do something. And of course, this was an attack line in the uh, Betsy rejoinder, too. Do you have something cooking beyond the Substack? Well, I mean, uh, cooking might be too uh, strong of a word. I have something. Um, unfortunately, I don't cook ever, so I don't have a good, like, I can't extend that metaphor beyond uh, what I just did, which was nothing. Um but, you know, I I do think that, and th- I thought this before the whole problem with this article that I had at The Intercept, what a lot of people have said, which is that this repressive, increasingly constrained climate for how we're allowed to discuss extremely important public debates has contaminated. No, it used to be kind of centered and, and incubated in academic institutions and now has metastasized and is contaminating almost every single important institution, certainly including journalism. And I'll just, it's not just about the fact that you can't go onto the op-ed pages and write about hot button topics, although you can't, it has, it, it affects the reporting. And I'll give you a really good example. We had this year, the most sustained, and intense and consequential protests slash riots across major cities, multiple cities in the United States for months since at least the 1960s, if not before that. And the only reporting for a long time that was done about the wreckage that those protests and riots wreaked in those cities and the impact that it had on people who lived in those communities and the anger a lot of them felt over it came from Michael Tracy, who got in his shitty little car (laughs) and fueled by PayPal donations, like drove around to all these places with his dumb little broken phone and interviewed random people about what they're experiencing because the newsrooms and the New York Times and the Washington Post were petrified of doing that reporting for fear of looking as though they were opposed to these protests. And that is something that is a real crisis in journalism is when not just that opinions are placed off limits, but when you're not allowed to report facts out of fear that it'll be, you'll be accused of impeding his agenda that you have to affirm. Um, And that crisis in journalism is one that, has motivated me more than anything to think about building and working a new news outlet and working with other people who also are concerned about this across the spectrum, left and right and everything as an antidote, not just to be free of those constraints, but to actively combat them. 
Hmm. Maybe uh, maybe we'll p- make this sort of last question. I don't really want to a- ask you too many questions about America since you obviously know nothing about this country. <laughs> um, but we do have an election coming up. And uh, building on that last answer, gazing into your crystal ball, not what happens with the election, but what happens to the media under uh like about that specific pathology under the scenarios in front of us right now people are you know biden is the most likely uh, winner so how how would you see that uh, affecting uh the way then the trend lines that the media and kind of the the culture in which the media sort of is is wrapped in uh going forward or like would they just would their brains completely break if trump won Oh, if Trump wins, there's going to be an absolute collective nervous breakdown across all of American liberalism. I don't think there's any question about that. Like, I'm not saying that for a fact. I do think Biden's probably going to win like everybody else. But assuming that I don't think that this obsessive focus on Trump and his movement and the attempt to exaggerate the threat of fascism or white supremacist domestic terrorism is going to go away because it's been way too profitable not just financially, but in every other way for power institutions in the government, the FBI, the CIA has renewed faith and cr- uh, credibility among almost every political sector outside the pro-Trump right. Um, it's been incredibly profitable in a financial way for cable outlets and for new news organizations that were stumbling and crumbling like the New York Times and Trump has single-handedly saved them. And what I worry most about is that there is now this union in, in behind the Democratic Party are the intelligence community, Silicon Valley and Wall Street. That is, and then they're in also bed with neocons and Bush Cheney operatives. And that is a unity of power that is very formidable, but also very authoritarian. They believe in censorship of any kind of ideas or reporting or views that reflect poorly on them. We've talked about all the ways that they try and stigmatize it. You're serving Trump. You're doing the dirty work of fascism. You're advancing the agenda of the Kremlin. And I think when people like Kamala Harris and um, all those people from the Obama administration who so righteously believe now that they're not just engaged in normal politics, but are staring down a fascist movement that has taken over the United States and threatens to do so. And they have the power of the FBI and the NSA and the CIA and the ability to force Silicon Valley to censor. Just recently, just this week, a Democratic senator, Ed Markey from Massachusetts, told Mark Zuckerberg that the problem that he has with Facebook isn't that they're deleting too many posts, but not deleting enough. They Mm. want more censorship. They want more scrutiny of their domestic opponents. They believe they're just good faith adversaries. They believe they're white supremacists. He's back. Hey, I'm back. Okay. Okay. Well, you're recording locally, so I, I hope we didn't lose too much of that. In all, in all sincerity here, folks, we had a little bit of a technical glitch towards the end there. So we, we didn't in real time get to hear Glenn's answer, but we did hear the most of it. And certainly that, that cabal that you described sort of being stitched together across all of these various interest groups and industries and political factions, I, I think it's, it's pretty formidable and a bit disconcerting. I think the one thing that makes me feel perhaps a little better is it's the sort of thing that is not easily held together. Um, And perhaps a a Biden win um, where the specter, the immediate specter of rising fascism, as has been described by many people, the Trump administration has been described by many people. um, Once that goes away, maybe this, this coalition breaks apart pretty quickly 
Um, and I don't know what that actually means, but in either case, say this, seems Camille, to me that there's a lot of, lot of potential danger there. Um, I, I will say this, that I'm on record as having said that I would prefer a Biden victory primarily to keep people's brains um, from being completely broken. I am at the point now where what I really want is divided government. And I am a little concerned about the Democrats having sort of all control of Congress and the White House and various um, institutions, both in journalism and the academy. And I, I will only say that. Amy uh, Coney Barrett is there to keep them in line. Yeah. <laughs> Until the courts are passed. Well, I- I'll, I'll say w- one one final thing before we go is uh, that instinct is not going away, Camille, and that instinct amongst uh, younger people in journalism that the best way to train the American people to not consume disinformation or misinformation, which are often considered to be the same thing, they're distinctly different, mm-hmm. um, is to prevent them from seeing it and prevent yeah. them from reading it. Yeah. And, you know, if you can go back to the goofy stuff that the American Spectator was doing in the mid 90s on Bill Clinton, you know, David Brock's early report, all that stuff, one would presume that they would be shut down from from uh, publishing a lot of that stuff today because people's interaction with it is itself bad. You know, words or violence uh, can provoke people. We have to prevent them from from seeing it. Unfortunately, I think that's uh, more and more common amongst journalists, amongst younger journalists. So. Except yeah. that uh, that uh, you know uh, uh, the Bongino report would post it on Facebook. Number one, a your favorite program, yeah. <laughs> and that's when they got uh, banned from 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 free, from Facebook. Um, well, gentlemen, I appreciate you all. Um, Glenn, I hope that you stay safe. I'm delighted that you decided to, to come back and join us here. Always feel I'm honored. Yeah, it was, it was even worse than the last time. So well, this is what we, we aim to please here. <laughs> Ugh, what a fucking baby. We, we know, we know what you're into. We know what you like. Uh, <laughs> um, how, do you, how do you say, how do you say, please change his diaper in Portuguese? <laughs> <laughs> Real talk, Doug. I'm excited for the next chapter, whatever it is. Um, I, I hope it is the the equivalent of a death row records for journalism. We need we need that. I'm just saying. Real talk. Saying. All right, I hope so time. too. All right, guys, it was great talking to you guys. Thank All you. Right. Stay safe. Bye. 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 We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column. column.